be really your own self-advocate and listen to your body. The body is, has so much information to share with us. And if we literally tune in, you'll be surprised how much it's telling you. And then to be hopeful because I see people with really complex health issues. And the first thing that they say to me when we're wrapping up our first consult is you've just given me hope back. And then we give them a roadmap to make that hope a reality, you know, in, in their lifetime. So it's just ever hopeful and ever vigilant and ever advocating. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyburn chiropractor, and movement expert as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey guys, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. Today we sit down with Terry Cochran, an internationally known health expert based in the Metro DC area. She specializes in complex and chronic conditions, as well as bringing elite performers to their highest potential. She recently authored the Amazon number one new release book, The Wilditarian Diet, Living as Nature Intended. So Terry and I sit down and we break out, what is the Wilditarian Diet? how should how we're eating be personalized to us and our genetics and how to know what signs and symptoms can be coming from our food and what foods potentially we would think are good for us but actually are very harmful for us so let us know what you think i can't wait for you guys to listen Terry, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. We are so excited to have you on. You are such a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much, Emily. So happy to be with you and your audience. Yeah. So your story is really near and dear to my heart as a fellow mama. And I'm so curious, how did you get onto this path as an integrative practitioner, a body interpreter, and really creating this bio-individual approach to how we eat? Well, you know, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, Terry, where would you be in uh, the fall of 2018? I certainly would have, wouldn't have said as an integrative practitioner, breaking all prior health rules and trying to really reinvent how we look at the body and health and disease. That was the last thing from my mind 20 years ago. But my son, who's now 24, and my daughter, who's now 20, when my son was born, he was born premature. And by the age of three, he was really struggling to be a healthy child. And we went to every doctor in the Metro DC area. He was failing to thrive. We would told, we were told he would have brain seizures. He had life-threatening asthma, bleeding eczema, and he could not walk or talk. Uh, he had the bone density of a 19-month-old. And so after two years of trying to really be that you know parent advocate for my son, I was hitting walls. And I had a, a big corporate career. I ran one of the departments within the Freddie Mac multifamily division. And I decided I was a risk manager for financial assets and I was going to become a risk manager for my son's health. And so I had my day job at Freddie and then I had my night job with William trying to figure him out. And this was before the age of the internet, before the age of Google. And I just became this rabid researcher really looking at children and whether they were healthy and if they were transformed, interviewing the parents, interviewing doctors, going to the library and just sitting around piles and piles of books with biochemistry and nutrition and food 
And I had an epiphany one day uh, at my kitchen table saying, oh my gosh, it's his entire immune system and the foods that I have taught to feed him are poisons to his body. And so within four days of removing, and this is before gluten-free was a, was a fad was a or a craze, thing. Yeah. the thing, I removed gluten and peanuts and dairy and corn and citrus and he started breathing. And then I started supporting his immune systems with, you know, really just gentle herbs and, uh, you know, his life turned around and now 24 years later, the boy that would not be normal, should not have been normal, should have had brain seizures, ended up getting a full academic ride to a public Ivy. He was a valediction speaker at his high school. He was rated one of the top scholars at University of Virginia. He's a singer. He's getting ready to come out with his own CD <laughs> on yeah. rap. He hasn't heard me. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet uh, later this year. <laughs> self-produced and he's, he's doing good work in the world. So very proud of him. Very, very much a transformed child. So amazing. You were like this health detective and you said it took four days to start to see changes. It was incredible because, you know, the body is, is truly incredible. And I have to tell you, I have been working with a client who lives out on the West coast and he had a very significant accident and the accident really, really impacted his nervous system to the point where he was on life support. And he's walked out of it as a miracle weeks later. And he told me today, I did the first non-Terry approved food and my symptoms went haywire. He goes, that's it. I'm going back on the Terry bandwagon because the body was incredible. And it gave me immediate feedback. If I give it what it can't break down, it's going to really, really affect me. That's the power of food. I love it. So let's dive in. Tell me about the wildatarian diet, which is really, it's really a movement. Sure. I'd love to. The wildatarian diet is based on my three tenets of what I call protein, fat, and sulfur malabsorption. And this is really based on almost 20 years of clinical research and clinical outcomes in my practice. And what we're finding, Emily, is that our food supply is kicking our butts. So all of these intended good foods, such as chicken and beef, even if they're pasture fed, we now know that the crowding conditions in these animals are causing amyloids, or the, uh, which are indigestible proteins, to be accumulated in their tissue, and it doesn't allow us to digest them. And when that happens, we build things in our body, and there's a lot of research on the beta amyloids of Alzheimer's. But we also know that now these amyloids, these truncated proteins, these indigestible proteins, instead of using them, we end up wearing them and we can wear them around our heart. We can wear them in our kidneys as kidney stones. We can wear them in our pancreas and actually increase the probability of diabetes. And studies out of Cambridge and Japan show that these amyloids are responsible for contributing to up to 50 major conditions in the US. And that's really scary. Who thought that, you know, chicken could be a problem? And so, it, so, so the scary. animal is stressed, the animal yes. is stressed and how it's raised. And then we eat it and then we are in our own body digesting the amyloids? Yes, we're actually not digesting the amyloids. We're not so yeah, so what happens is typically when we eat protein, our bodies will take their natural digestive enzymes and break down those proteins into amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. And then they're recombined. It's sort of like they're repackaged. And then the body uses them to make tendons and hormones and balance glucose among you know, thousands and thousands of other metabolic processes. 
But what happens is when you have an amyloid type protein, it's misfolded, it's less digestible, the body can't break it down. And so it ends up actually accumulating in tissue. And we know it can either be tissue specific like the brain or the pancreas, or it can be systemic. And we have found it you know, associated with some forms of blood cancer. So it's really become a problem with these proteins that are indigestible. And so the wild atarian, the, re- the, the reason for the word wild atarian, which I coined, was that I found that if we eat wild game and wild fish and shellfish or low mycotoxin legumes and grains and so forth, we are lowering our amyloid load in our body. And I've just seen thousands of transformations in my practice when we adopt this approach. So protein, fat, and sulfur are the big three Sulfur being the next one on the uh, kind of the the block that's really disrupting our health system. And the reason being is that sulfur-rich foods, which were intended to do so many good things for our body, all those good broccolis, those crucifers that are so anti-cancer, and the yolk within the egg, which is so choline-rich, they have so many wonderful properties. But unfortunately, once again, back to the way we grow our food, our food supply, in particular, Roundup, which is liberally sprayed on our crops, particularly wheat, is stopping the body's ability to process sulfur appropriately. It literally stops sulfur in its tracks as a as a metabolite, or, you know, some some sort of unend stage thing that we need to convert to what is called sulfate. We need sulfate. Our body needs sulfate for ligaments and tendons and mental health, and also it, we need it for our gut integrity. And when that gets interrupted, just like the protein assimilation got interrupted, bad things happen. 73% of rheumatoid arthritis linked to sulfur processing, ulcerative colitis, IBD, IBS, gut issues linked to sulfur, even depression and anxiety linked to the body's inability to really get to its end state. So what are other popular healthy foods? Because I everything you're talking about, I'm thinking, oh my God, my broccoli that I eat every day or... <laughs> My, my five eggs that I eat every morning, what other healthy foods can be hurting us? Well, you know, first we have to look at our genes because not all sulfur will hurt everyone. But if you have a genetic predisposition to not be able to readily process sulfur, I am one of those. My whole practice starts with genes. And with the wildatarian movement and diet really comes a quiz. And the quiz helps you unpack who you are based on, you know, some simple questions. If you have asthma, if you have a history of arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis in your family, if you're sensitive to sulfites and sulfates, if you are, if you smell asparagus coming out on the other end, that's a likely indicator you're not, you're not great at processing sulfur. And so we're eating all this, you know, sulfur rich food, which is intended to be so good for us, but it may not be your friend right now. So you know, arugula, watercress, the all ever popular kale. We say killer kale or kale is your hail if you've got that that predisposition. Egg yolks, again, garlic. So some of these really healthy foods, raw onions, could really be anything but healthy for you if you had that predisposition and you're experiencing symptoms. Even if you're buying organic, local, like trying to avoid potentially anything that is sprayed with Roundup. Yes. Even if you're trying to avoid everything that's sprayed, according to Dr. Senefet of MIT, no one crop is immune because it just, even if it's organic, you can't get super clean. You just can't. So even like buying at your like local organic. Clearly better. I will say clearly better. But 
an organic piece of broccoli is not going to save you because the broccoli still contains the sulfur. And if you've had any exposure to glyphosate Roundup, which even if you're really clean, your neighbor maybe you know, spraying their dandelion weeds with Roundup, and it's potentially leaching into your, you know, into your existence. So it's really hard to get away from it. What's really interesting is even people that don't have the genetic predisposition for less than robust sulfur metabolism is there's now this thing, and, and Ben Lynch coined this term, dirty genes. And so you may not even have the gene, but you look like you have the gene and you're acting like you have the gene. So you got you to gotta deal with your situation as if you had that gene. So very, very interesting phenomena that's happening because of our food supply. Interesting. Is there any, like if you're going to be like one food is an absolute no-no, is there anything in particular? Yes, yes. I will say one food that is an absolute no-no for everyone. Okay, everybody, hold on to your hats. Peanut butter and peanut, which I know is so important in the, the fitness industry. And the reason why is that peanuts are a known aflatoxin. Aflatoxin is a known carcinogen and peanuts also will turn on certain bad bacteria in our gut that they kind of hang out and coexist. I call them the UN. Everybody's playing happily in the sandbox, but (laughs) peanut butter will, will feed them and make them bullies. And so believe it or not, peanut butter could contribute to diabetes because it might have an impact on your body's ability to process insulin if you've been exposed to strep. And we've also looked at the clinical research that shows that, oh my gosh, I don't have to have strep throat to have strep as an antibody kicking my butt and dysregulating my pancreatic cells ability to bring in insulin into my cells. Therefore, peanut butter could be contributing to making me insulin resistant. Oh my goodness. I love that there's research around this. And I feel like so many people haven't heard of it or aren't aren't looking at it. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah. So we are total nerds in my practice, complete and utter nerds. And we we say nerds rock. And I'm always doing research. It is literally one of the hallmarks of my practice is that ever iterative way of looking at the body. And I have an ex-genetics researcher from the National Institutes of Health who's been with me for almost five years. And one of the great things that, that I get, you know, that's a blessing for me in my practice is that I get to see clients eight, all day, every day. And my clients are my biggest teachers. And so I will make some clinical observations and connections in my practice through their symptomology. And then I'll tell my scientists, go find it in the medical literature. I think this might be happening. You know, like today we figured out that varicella roster could be contributing to your psoriasis, especially hmm. if you have the sulfur gene. So who knew that chickenpox that has been lying dormant can be reactivated. And then all of a sudden that chicken pox could be contributing to your psoriatic condition. So we are ever, ever looking to further illuminate why. And what we're finding is one of the hallmarks of the wild movement is that these truncated protein structures, not only are they indigestible and accumulate in our tissue, the research shows that it helps feed the viral load amyloids are waking up. I'm saying we're having a Rip Van Winkle waking up from a viral epidemic perspective. These amyloids are feeding viral loads. And so these viruses that used to hang out, because once we've been exposed to a virus, it'll be in our system and we'll have an antibody. But these viruses are so waking up. So say that up. again. So the truncated protein. The amyloid, yes. This little misfolded protein, this poor little protein that can't be broken down 
fed through our food supply, is potentially contributing to the reawakening of viral loads. And that is fascinating. And I believe I've become one of the, you know, looking at viruses, much like a genetic predisposition, I've become, I believe, a pioneer in that because viruses are being turned on and off, just like genes are being turned on and off by our environment. And part of that environment is our food supply. Another part of our environment is our stress response, you know, it's our lifestyles. They say that one of the most popular reason for a virus being reactivated is actually the stress response, in particular, epinephrine. Epinephrine will, will wake up that virus, also in the clinical literature. And so, that, again, the third tenet of the wildatarian movement is fat, protein, fat, and sulfur malabsorption. And one of the biggest fats that we take on every day, I call it the cupcake, is our adrenaline because adrenaline being the cupcake is going to... It is a fat and a sugar. Uh, then clinical studies show that epinephrine or adrenaline, it's the same thing, two different names, will literally increase fat in your cells and it increases your sugar. It increases your glucose store. So it's like, okay, I might as well just have eaten a cupcake when I had that massive stress response from whatever, you know, you fill in the blank. And we are living in a constant state of stress, especially if you're living on the coast with, you know, very high demanding lifestyles. We weren't made this way. And we haven't been able to adapt. Our body and our biochemistry has not caught up with our food supply, how it's changed in the worst sort of way, and also how our lives have changed. And so this, this wildatarian movement, and that's why I call it a movement, because it's, it's iterative and we are not static and our lives are not static. So we have to always be ever vigilant of what is my body telling me today? I'm a body interpreter. I'm teaching everyone that uh, comes in contact with me to be their own body interpreter. But we have to turn things around and we have to really kind of be introspective and say what's happening and why. And if we know the what and the why, we can figure out the how. So intermittent stress, stressors, are those okay? Or are we talking about like that chronic stress that's really affecting people? That's a really great question. So intermittent stress, if we can go into a stress response and immediately recalibrate to the rest and restore. So when we go into stress, that's a sympathetic nervous system response. That is your, you're literally cupcaking yourself. Okay. So the reason why we cupcaked ourselves is mother nature is highly intelligent and said, holy crap, we got to put some sugar in those muscles so you can run, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, yeah. but the body is, is, was only intended to put those sugar in those muscles for those short periods. And then all of a sudden that stopped and then cellular respiration returned, our heart rate lowered, everything went back to parasympathetic nervous system, which is where our organ systems re refurbish themselves. Right. But this constant drip of stress is making us chronically ill potentially because that adrenaline is so, so destructive. And the body, we, again, back to our adaptation as humans, we have not learned to distinguish a bomb coming at us from a dog barking at us in the morning while we're going to our mailbox or if we're going for a morning walk. That interruption in the body system is still an interruption. Or, you know, the traffic jam or the, you know, the late night call that you get saying, uh, my, your babysitter's not coming in tomorrow because she's sick. Therefore, now you've got to make arrangements for your child because, you know, they don't have a place to go and, you know, during the day. Right. So it's that constant drip of stressors 
that is causing a cupcake, causing our body's ability to be less efficient at processing fats, fats which we actually really need, like fats for our brain, where 60% of our brain is made up of fats. And then again, back to the genes, circling back to the genes, which is one of the hallmarks of my practice as well, is that if you're already predisposed not to be a great metabolizer of fats from if you have like the COMT gene or if you have the leptin gene or if you have the VDR gene or if you have the APO gene, which has been so linked to Alzheimer's, you're just not efficient at breaking down fats as you know, your neighbor might be, and you're going to be more susceptible to being cupcaked and being fat malabsorbed. So we've really got to look at that. So I love that you have this saying that genes are our tendency, not our destiny. Exactly. If we can figure out why we turned them on, we can turn them back off and then we go on our merry way. So I'd love to break out. You talk about low mycotoxin gluten-free. So I'm gluten-free. Most of our patients in the clinic are gluten-free, but you're taking gluten-free to like a whole nother level here. Yes, I am, because I believe we're trading gluten-free for diabetes. You know, we're trying to get away from celiac, but then we're, we're potentially stepping on the diabetes trail. And the reason is that most products that are gluten-free in the market, unless you're really, really facile with how to read labels and knowing what those labels mean, is that a lot of these products are corn-based. And corn is, 88% of corn is genetically modified, first of all. So that's a big oops. But then corn has been considered a mycotoxin. And what is a mycotoxin? It is a fungal metabolite. It has fungus. And these fungal metabolites, again, mycotoxin, as I spoke to peanuts earlier, being an aflatoxin. So the aflatoxin is like the devil on steroids and the mycotoxin is just plain devil. Um, (laughs) but, But both of them are, they're fungal metabolites, which have such disruptive mechanisms in our body because these, these metabolites are feeding candida, which we know candida overgrown can actually create mania and bipolar disorder it's it because it disrupts dopamine metabolism it candida can disrupt thyroid function because it doesn't allow our thyroid hormones to be used appropriately candida can contribute to psoriasis to eczema to a whole host of things so and it also feeds those strep antibodies that we might have in our in our system so we have to be very careful with these fungal metabolites again soy being very similar over 90% of soy in the United States is genetically modified in that wonderful phytoestrogen that soy carries, which was intended to be so protective to women, converts to a xenoestrogen and they're less protective. And so these mycotoxins are really, really displacing some good things happening in our body and we have to be very careful. And so my wildetarian grains really go away from those mycotoxins and we instead focus on quinoa, or buck wheat, which we call the buck not wheat. It is not wheat, it's not even a, a grain. It's actually a seed that acts like a grain. And we look at brown rice, we look at oats, and we look at, again, based on your wildetarian type, you're gonna go to which of those grains are best for you, but those grains don't generally carry that mycotoxin load. So how does someone know, or where should they start if they're curious, am I a, a low fat, a low sulfur, like what kind of wildetarian type they are? So the way you, you would know is on my website, you, it's just easy to just go in and click and take your quiz. And your quiz is going to tell you what type of wildetarian you are. And I've developed four major archetypes. You have your wildetarian basic, your low sulfur wildetarian, your low fat wildetarian, and your low fat, your low sulfur wildetarian. 
And then there's an ancillary piece of the quiz that also talks about oxalates. And if you, you also fit into that category, then you're going to be very respectful of oxalates as well. And those are the ever popular almonds and coconut and black beans and even parsley that are so healthy for us. I have an oxalate sensitivity, so I have to navigate my way through those as well. And the great thing is the, my Wilditarian diet book, our recipes are all specifying which type you are, and then the recipe adjusts so you can make that beautiful recipe just in a omit or substitute certain ingredients. So everyone can avail themselves of these great recipes just based on their type. You just substitute. Oh my God, I love it. So I'm, I'm totally thinking about my own, some of my own health struggles, like a lifetime of eczema. I'm thinking, oh, oh my wow. gosh, which, which, which wildatarium am I? And I can't wait to start to change because I feel like I eat pretty clean. I eat a lot of protein. I'm thinking, should I not be eating so much protein? Yeah. Well, and it's not, it's not just the protein, it's the type of protein. And I will tell you, I'm a WS wildatarian. So I'm a low sulfur, low oxalate wildatarian. And it has changed my life, Emily. I mean, I'm much leaner than I used to be. My blood sugar is much more regulated than it ever used to be. I feel like I have more energy. My brain is really, you know, very on point, which I'm sure my clients are thankful for. Yeah. <laughs> But it's made a big difference in my life, truly. My inflammation's way down. So when people, for example, going back to the protein, even if we're going for like grass-fed, grass-finished, let's say ground beef. Yeah, clearly it's better than not. I mean, if you're, you know, there's a continuum of bad, terrible, and you know, better and then best. Right. And yes, if you don't have a choice, then yes, grass-fed, grass-finished is clearly the better choice. But we are finding is that DNA is transcribed multiple generationally. And so even though I don't have the clinical science on this, so I haven't been able to prove it, only through the, the kind of the empirical work that I see with my clients is that they may not, still may not be clean enough. And I've had several clients go back to eating non-wild for a little bit and they're like, oop, no, I'm going back because it just doesn't feel as good. You know, and even to this gentleman, the point, in fact, who he went off his terry plan, his wild terry plan one day and felt complete acute symptomology. Wow. So it's that, it's that powerful. So can you share what you eat? Sure. Your, like how you take train or take care of yourself physically? Absolutely. So I'll give you my morning today. I'll give you my day so far. So I wake up every morning and I usually do a green juice. And because I'm a low, t- tend to be low oxalate wildatarian, I do my juice with cilantro and cucumber and I put a shot of apple cider vinegar in it. And then I went and I worked out. I, I ran and I did some weights and uh, some floor. And then I had for breakfast, I had an organic. Now, even though I'm low oxalate, I can tolerate oats as long as I don't do them every day. So I had this awesome oatmeal with chia seeds and fresh strawberries. And then for lunch, I had, I made this for dinner last night. I had this amazing duck breast with wild rice and asparagus. And I had done this plum reduction sauce. So it was, it was incredible. And tonight I'm going to have lobster. Now that's this Friday, but typically my, my day of eating is I'll usually, yesterday I did a bison tenderloin with sweet potatoes and grilled eggplant. And then I did an egg white omelet with some fresh cilantro and tomato, or I'll do like avocado, on Sammy's millet flax bagels. I think those aren't gluten, they're gluten-free, but they're not celiac approved because there's cross-reactivity. So if you're celiac, don't go out and get them. But if you're just gluten sensitive, these are amazing and you can get them online and I have no affiliation with them, but I think they're incredible. Avocado and tomato on a Sammy's millet flax bagel. 
or I'll do, you know, a little bit of shrimp or I'll do bison chili. So by no means deprivation. Oh like, my gosh. Like, Hi, absolutely can I come not. over to your house and <laughs> that was amazing. Oh, I had a friend of mine come over for dinner last night and he'd never had duck before. And he's like, oh my, and this morning he was still texting me, thanking me. That was the most fabulous meal. And I'm like, well, you, you know, it took 15 minutes. You saw. So it doesn't have to be difficult to, this is when you think about duck and, you know, I'm certainly not Julia Childs, but literally what I did is I just took the cast iron skillet, put some plums and cranberries in there and just sauteed them in a little bit of olive oil, took them out of the pan, then put the the duck in there. I seared it with olive oil and what I call my wildatarian herb blend, which includes some thyme and some bay leaf and a little bit of rosemary. And, you know, I had the duck seared in about three or four minutes unbelievable, non-fatty, non-gamey, incredible. And all these recipes are in your book. Yes. Now the duck recipe, I have, I have a different duck recipe in my book, but yes, we have many of these recipes in my book. Nice. When you're looking at the genetics, what, what are the tools you're using other than, you know, symptoms that people are telling you? Yeah. So we can do a genetic analysis and we, if you do a 23andMe, we run it through methyl genetics and then we do our own analyses. But my own proprietary method of muscle testing really helps discern what might be going on in the body, what imbalance might be there. And what we have found is it's really interesting. It corroborates with our muscle testing. So when there's a genetic analysis that's performed. And what does that um, muscle testing look like? Can you share that? Because we do muscle testing in our clinic in a different way, kind of a biomechanical way. Yeah. So what we find is we call this the MRI in the wild. <laughs> I love it. (laughs) And it's not something that I invented, but I adapted it to, I call it being terrified. I have a naturopath that works with me and I've terrified her into my methods of thinking. So what we do is we just, you hold vials that carry the electromagnetic signature of whatever it is, is let's say it could be garlic or it could be a streptococcus aurelius. And if, as I apply pressure to your arm and I hold it against an organ system, if the body can no longer hold that muscle being that that nerve conductivity is broken because the circuit's been broken. So there's no nerve impulse to hold the muscle. Then there, that tells me there's an imbalance with whatever it is that you're holding relative to your body. And so from there we go on to, you know, get a correlative, what supplement or what is it that you need to stay away from to help support that imbalance. I see. Oh, that's so interesting. And people can't do that on themselves. They have to come see you in DC for that. Yeah, no. Well, it's hard to muscle test yourself. We do see people literally from all over the world. And, you know, if there is, if they can't see me personally, then I do require that a genetic test be done because at least it'll give me the genes. And if I can intersect the genes and the symptoms, then we can get very, you know, very close on what's going on. And, And so generally what I do in those cases that I just be, I'm just conservative. I make certain assumptions, you know, like if you have the oxalate gene, and, you know, you've had a little bit of, of arthritis and you're going to, I'm going to tell you no black beans for a bit. Got it. So we're going to include the quiz in the show notes and awesome. it was so great having you on. You're such a fun. wealth of knowledge. I love it. And everyone should check out your book. It's the number one new release on Amazon. It's a yeah. Beautiful I'm very excited. Yeah, Thank you. So exciting. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? Well, you know, I've talked about a lot of things that are scary. And one of the things that I just want to say, and I'm going to leave your audience members with is just be, be really your own self advocate and listen to your body. The body is, has so much information to share with us. And if we literally tune in, it can, you'll be surprised how much it's telling you. And then to be hopeful because 
I see people with really complex health issues. And the first thing that they say to me when we're wrapping up our first consult is you've just given me hope back. And then we give them a roadmap to make that hope a reality, you know, in, in their lifetime. So it's just ever hopeful and ever vigilant and ever advocating. All right, guys, if you feel like Muscle Medicine Podcast is adding value, go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review. Let us know what you think about Terry's episode and go check out her quiz on her website. We'll drop the URL in the show notes and figure out what wildatarian diet you should be following.